When you first go vegan and you see all the horrible things that happen to animals, you know, the, the passion in you is awoken and you, and you want everyone to also look at that mm. and be like, just, just open your eyes and see what I'm seeing. Smoke my back, smoke my... <coughs> There's a guy commenting saying, this guy definitely did steroids, especially because he's plant-based. So that's another thing. Because you, you know, you've got into really good shape, which people don't think is achievable, they're going to accuse you of steroids. And then the added little added spice on top of that is the fact that you're vegan or plant-based and you can't possibly grow muscles without animal protein because these people don't know any better. You know, these people have no idea what they're talking about. They, they get all their advice from, you know, these fitness gurus on Instagram, these TikTok influencers that are all bros that eat lots of meat. And that's, and that, and that's all they know. Right. I was like that too, you know, when I was like 18 and then I grew up, you know, and that's a problem. A lot of people haven't grown up yet. Hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of foolproof mastery. Today, we're joined by Dr. Manil Patel, known as Dr. Iron Junkie on Twitter, Instagram. A lot of cool posts with tips every day and facts about the vegan movement. Dr. Manil, he's been having to balance the stress of being a doctor over the past few years whilst getting shredded on a vegan diet. He's been featured as the vegan doctor that got shredded. So Dr. Manil, great to have you here. Is there anything I missed in my introduction to you? No, you summed it up well. <laughs> I'm actually currently studying to be a family medicine doctor or GP. So in the UK, we call it GP. And in the USA, I think they call it family medicine. That's what I'm currently doing at the moment. But yeah, I've been a doctor for about six years. Qualified in 2016 from King's College London. Actually, I was born in London, grew up in London end up going to uni in London as well. But yeah, now I'm actually living just outside of London where I, where I'm doing my kind of family medicine. It's kind of like an internship or, but yeah, been a doctor for six years though, otherwise, and I've been vegan for five years. Mm. I'm very grateful for joining because I know you've got exams in <laughs> April, so you're working hard. No worries. Talking about pressure, you've had to manage the stress of shifts in the past, spontaneously mm -hmm. trying to get shredded. Initially, mm -hmm. you had a few problems with weight gain when you went vegan. So tell me, first of all, before we get into the veganism, how did you manage to manage everything during your shift work? So yeah, I mean, planning is the word that comes to mind whenever you're kind of working shifts, knowing kind of what your schedule is going to be for the week and then laying out a plan for the week so you can actually hit your target. So at the time, if I talk about when I was trying to get in kind of bodybuilding shape and shredded for the, for the photo shoot that we did in 2019, I was working 12 hour shifts at times, sometimes night shifts. I was doing general in, in just town outside of London. And at the time it was, yeah, like I was, I had to kind of, when it was 12 hour shifts, I changed how I trained. I used to kind of train in the evening and that's how I always was. But for the first time I was like, look, I need to wake up early in the morning, train before work, get that done and then hit the day. So I'd always kind of wake up at around, I think at that time it was around 5 a.m. I'm not expecting anyone else to do this, but I was waking up at like 5 a.m., get to the gym before work, do my workout, have my meal kind of just before the day starts. And then I'll have like a 12 hour shift or might be a nine hour shift, but a 12 hour shift and then eat my lunch, have a snack towards the end of the day and then dinner. And then when I get home, it was literally just milk prepping and then getting straight to bed. And that was literally how my life was. Sounds pretty kind of boring, but it's what I needed to do to get, get kind of in the shape that I got in. I think for the average person who's just trying to get in shape or just trying to get a bit fitter, you don't need to go that kind of 
I guess, hardcore, you call it, or maybe extreme. But I think having that plan, especially if you're doing shift work, I tell everyone, if you're, if you're doing, if, if you're doing, especially, especially in medicine, you're trying to look after your own health, managing that stress, managing the shifts, waking up just a bit earlier, make sure you can try and exercise in the, in the morning before work usually helps because sometimes at the end of a shift, you don't know when it's going to end. You don't know how tired you're going to be at the end of the day. You might skip the workout. And there's a tendency to do that for a lot of people, especially when I speak to other medics, you know, they get to the end of a busy day, you're completely mentally exhausted, physically exhausted. The last thing you really want to do is go to the gym and then hit a heavy workout. So for me, it was about getting up early, getting that workout done. You know, it makes, I'm not, I'm not trying to make it sound like a chore. It was more like a kind of, I needed to get this done. It was, it was going to be part of what I needed to get to my goal. So get that done in the morning and that way I don't have to worry about it after work. You know, the day can end when it ends at work and I'm not stressed about kind of thinking, oh, when am I going to get the training session in? So that was a training part of it. And then for the eating, it was about planning your meals because it's so easy to go off track, especially when you're at work, busy shift, there's, there's snacks around you. There's, there's food, the kind of the junk food usually everywhere. And that's what people, I see people snacking on all the time, which I don't blame them because they haven't made a meal. They haven't made their lunch. So they've not got a plan. They're not going to stick to that plan. They're going to end up, you know, just eating whatever's available, whatever's around to fuel them while they're getting through that busy shift, you know, like it's so demanding having to see patients and, you know, one after the other, you're on your feet all day, you're answering phone calls, you're making phone calls, you're, you know, you're, you're stressed out managing the day. The last thing you want to think about is, oh, okay, now what am I going to eat? You know, you almost get like a decision fatigue about what you're going to eat. So if you've got, if you've got that structure, you've planned your meal out, you've had your lunch, you've got a snack that's waiting for you. You're looking forward to that snack have that healthy snack and then that's it you move on you, you do the rest you don't have to kind of go outside of it so I, it became like clockwork for me having that planning in place and i think i've noticed at times when i don't have a plan in place that's when i, t- I my kind of stress and things and you know my physique or how i'm feeling all that tends to suffer a bit more when i haven't got that strategies those strategies in place so i think that's that was the most important thing managing shift work that's what i would say did you do night shifts as well yeah, at the time I, I did a few night shifts. So luckily at that time I was able to pick the shifts I was doing. But a couple of years before that, when I was kind of a foundation year doctor, kind of what they call in America residency, that time I was doing quite a lot of night shifts. And even then it, it was literally about planning when I could have my meals, when I could train. So for the night shifts, I used to train before the night shift started. And that way, you know, I'm not having to train in the morning after, after the night shift where I'm knackered. So I'd train before the night shift. The adrenaline from the workout would carry me into the night shift. I'd eat like one meal during that night shift. And then in the morning when I get home, I'd just go to sleep. So you almost have to completely flip your circadian rhythm, you know. And in the long run, we know that's going to be super bad for you. It was, it's definitely not, it's not something I recommend people doing lifelong because we know it's going to shave years off your life. And the, the most important thing you do when you're working night shifts is, is, is sleeping really and getting the rest that you need because your body's just like wiped it doesn't know what's going on it's got that added stress of being out of its own clock so every moment you do get a chance to sleep and get some good sleep you take it again it's the same thing really planning 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 yeah switching day shifts with night shifts that's probably even more difficult i find also that when you do a workout late in the evening it gives an adrenaline boost and i struggle to sleep initially you had the strategy but it was the wrong strategy because you gained a little bit of weight when you transitioned to veganism so explain how you became vegan and then Mm -hmm. the initial mistakes you made yeah I wasn't always vegan. People that know me will, will know that like for the first 25 years of my life, I pretty much 
a standard omnivorous diet. And then funny enough, when I first started training, going to the gym, I started doing paleo and kind of almost like a carnivore diet. Like this was in 2000 and probably 11 when I started training, taking training more seriously, all the stuff I was reading was like, you need to eat more red meat for the protein. You need to eat more meat. You need to eat different types of meat. You need to eat wild meat. You need to eat game meat because this is what our ancestors ate. And that's how you're going to get super shredded and you're going to put on more muscle and it's going to boost your testosterone. Kind of all the rubbish you're hearing coming out now, I was already making those mistakes, you know, years ago. But, you know, obviously, because I had just started training, I was still making gains. I was making those kind of early gains in training and I was I was getting muscular. So I thought, oh, it must be the diet. That's what's doing it. All this protein I'm eating, that's what's probably making me get, get stronger, right? Nothing to do with actual training and hard work I was putting in. It's all about the diet, which is obviously we know is patently false. And then kind of around 2017, I met someone, I met a vegan woman and people were like, oh, you did, you went vegan because of a woman. Yeah. But actually what happened was like, we would talk about it and like get into discussions and debates and arguments. And I've always loved animals. Like that's not, that's no mystery either. All, all my family know that I've loved animals, you know, and I've always had like a affinity for them beyond what the normal person thinks of animals like I, I, if I wasn't a doctor I would have been a vet or I would have worked in nature or something and then you know when I was asked the question about you know you eat you you eat animals but you're saying you love them like how can that be so what I've talked about before the meat paradox and that's what all of us kind of live with that paradox a lot of us do say we love animals but we also eat them and, it, and you know you wrestle with that in your mind you have this cognitive dissonance that goes on you're trying to justify what you're doing oh it's natural meat is healthy it's you know humans need it and it's you know it's, it's good for you it's got protein all the kind of mental just gymnastics i could do you know humans at the top of the food chain and what about what about lions and all this stuff and then I, it ultimately came down to it tastes good that's why i do it and that kind of wasn't enough of a reason to carry on doing it and i, I still wasn't willing to give up and then what happened was I watched a, a YouTube video by Gary Yurovsky called The Greatest Speech You've Ever Ever Heard. And I watched it because, again, this is my girlfriend at the time. She was like, watch this video, see what you think. And at first I was like, I'm not going to watch it because I don't want to waste my time. She goes, no, just watch it. And if you still if you still want to carry on eating meat, go for it. And I was like, fine. I watched it and I was like, crap. <laughs> After watching it, I was like, yeah, I can't. I can't justify it anymore. So, yeah, I just pretty much went vegan overnight, July 7th, 2017. And I think what happened was... What I was really afraid of before going vegan was the kind of common questions that people have, like, you know, what am I going to eat? Because you've been doing something a certain way for so long. It's, it's a, it's a change of a habit. And that's always difficult for people to do, isn't it? Coming around to doing something that they've never done before. So that's the fear of that. I was training really hard. So it was about what am I going to get, what am I going to do for protein? Because all my kind of training years, I've always been told that you need meat for protein. So you've got the added fear of that. I kind of also developed these strategies that kept me lean and allowed me to build muscle. So I had certain meals that I would eat, which obviously were based around animal protein and then, you know, your, your vegetables and your carbs. But I was kind of a low carb kind of person as well. And I was like, well, actually vegan food has a lot of carbs in it. What am I going to do? So these were the kind of things that were working against me going into it. So I didn't really, I really, really didn't know how to approach it. And I thought, okay, I can just switch out the animal protein for vegan mock meats as first. And I just did that. And I tried to look at the macros, but I wasn't really counting the macros much. And I was just trying to eat as much of those as I could, eat as much beans as I could. I was eating nuts for the protein. You know, I'm eating quite high calorie foods, peanut butter. And really, I'm just trying to get, I'm just trying to get bigger. And it, to be honest, I didn't put on as much weight 
initially I put, I kind of was all right. Definitely compared to when I was eating low carb, I put on a bit of weight, but then I said, when I went traveling to Asia, I actually lost a bit of weight because I wasn't eating enough out there because there wasn't enough food. And then when I came back, I kind of rebounded. I kind of ate as much as I could because I was like, trying to put weight back on. And that's how I gained a lot of weight. Again, this is poor, this is poor planning, right? And not knowing enough, not having the knowledge to actually know what foods to eat. I guess not knowing my own body and how it would respond to certain foods at the time. And this, these things come with trial and error, unless you really hire a coach or a nutritionist, this is stuff that you're going to learn by trial and error. And I think then basketball well, in 2019, where my friend kind of was like, you know, we, we should try and get you into, you know, bodybuilding shape because you've got muscle underneath all of this kind of <laughs> extra body fat. Why don't we do, why don't we do that? And then that's when it kind of, I lost all that body fat and learned more about nutrition along the way as well. When did you get into bodybuilding? Was it at that moment then, or was it something you've done your whole life? Well, I mean, to be honest, I always say that I'm not really a bodybuilder because I've never actually stepped, stepped on stage, you know, so it's something I've done more as a hobby. Like I've tried to build my muscles. And I guess when I started out training, that was the intention to build bigger muscles. So anyone that wants to build bigger muscles, I guess you are a bodybuilder by definition, because you're building your body and you're training in a way that does that. But then I also did a bit of powerlifting at the start to get stronger. Cause I just, I wanted to, you know, lift as much heavy weight as I could. And then I guess when I got injured from powerlifting again, when you lift, when you're trying to lift really heavy weights and I guess that day I was a bit more tired. It was towards, I remember it was the end of the day and I, you know, I just made a mistake. After that, I kind of turned towards more bodybuilding style training because I felt like, you know, you can kind of get away with lifting slightly lighter weights. It's, it's a bit more friendly on the joints. And then since then, I've kind of been doing that style of training, but I never kind of envisioned myself getting into the kind of shape bodybuilders get into in terms of where they get, you know, completely, you know, single digit body fat, where you can see every vein, every muscle. I never envisioned myself doing that until one of my kind of friends who has a personal training company, he kind of approached me and said, you know, I could help you get into that kind of shape. And especially when I was like, well, I'm a vegan, it's going to be harder for me to do that not realizing obviously there are vegan bodybuilders out there and stuff that have done it. I guess I just didn't think I could do it and then ended up doing it. And I was like, okay, I guess, I guess it is possible. Your actions do the talking and the photos mm. of you once you've gotten shredded are incredible. I'm personally a fan of mock meats, depending mm. on the macros. Mm. I don't know if your view has changed since then, but I think mock meats, you can have them occasionally yeah. if you look at the salt content and if you try yeah. and get one, which sort of replicates a lean protein, I try and go for one gram of protein for less than 10 calories. If you get mm. a mock meat with about 20 grams of protein for less than 200 calories, yeah. then that's pretty good because it's effectively like lean meat. Yeah, I agree with you. There's like kind of different levels of mock meats you're eating. And I think I used to eat them a lot more, but then obviously over time I've started eating them less, but I still would have them. I'll still have them once a week or maybe even twice a week. That's better than having something. I'm not going to name names, but it's better than having something that's got really high fat, really high salt and really high, you know, medium, mediocre protein, no matter how tasty some of them are. Those ones I keep on a very rare, rare occasion, just as a treat, really. And I think that's the way to go about it. You know, try to eat more whole foods when you can. And, you know, don't be afraid of the mock meats, just know which ones to look for. And I think that's what people need to learn how to do and not kind of tar them all with the same brush. And as you said, as long as the fiber content's higher, the fat content's low, the salt content's low, the protein content's high. Things such as corn, tofu, seitan, tempeh, they are whole foods and they are yeah. not mock meat. Typically, they have a longer list of ingredients, yeah. mock meats. I try to have stuff like corn because it's fairly low in calorie, 
high in proteins, made of a fungus. It's pretty good. We also have a textured vegetable protein, which again is made of soy, and it's pretty much it's pretty much just soy dehydrated soy curls. So it's it's an easy way to have like mock mints. And then yeah, there are there's, there's kind of ones made of uh, textured vegetable protein, like with either wheat or soy. The corn that we get in the UK it looks like chicken fillets. Know how they make it? It's in the border, yeah. isn't it? It's in the realms. Called quite healthy. It's a good one. Oh. It's also very lean, low in calories for the amount of protein. I recommend people to have one lean protein per meal without mm. getting obsessed. For the yes. snack, you can sort of have whatever uh, a fruit is okay. It's not do or die. Mm. If you don't have a protein, 20 grams of some sort of lean protein per meal, mm. you're going to just gain weight or lose your muscle. But for mm. the main meals, for example, for breakfast, like protein meal, add a scoop of protein powder yeah, and then some soy milk can also boost up the protein soy or pea milk are the best ones for lunch maybe a tofu tempeh seitan yeah. corn and for dinner maybe a protein pasta with some textured protein that's pretty much my meal plan this is what i do because the breakfast everyone knows i love my oats and i'll put a scoop in there because i like the way it tastes and it just yeah it boosts up the protein a bit add some seeds or some nut butter. That's a little bit extra protein as well. I don't really, I don't really count anymore because I've been doing it so long. And then lunchtime, yeah, like a, you know, a serving of tofu or tempeh or, or seitan or something like a fist size serving is usually worth about 20 to 30 grams of protein, depending on what you're, you know, with lots of vegetables and depending on your goals, it's going to be with some a source of carbohydrates as well. I also sometimes chuck in the beans as well. Like if I have a serving of beans with it, that again, bumps up the protein a little bit. And I don't really view beans as a protein source. I view them as like a, as a complex carb source, they're my fiber source. I love beans for fiber. And, you know, I think everyone should eat one or two or even three servings of legumes a day. So beans are great. And they happen, they happen to have a bit of protein too, which is great, especially edamame beans, which are even higher in protein and they're a complete source as well. And then, you know, dinner is usually similar to lunch. My snack varies. So snack can sometimes be either, I'll, I'll use like a half a scoop of protein to make a protein yogurt with soy yogurt. I'll chuck in some granola or I'll chuck in like berries, seeds and things like that to have a snack or I'll have a handful of nuts and some fruit, you know, so the snack really varies, but make sure, yeah, as I said, the th you, like you said as well, the three meals, you've got a, a good protein source and then kind of build a meal like that. But I get, yeah, I guess, um, yeah. I guess we get, you know, I don't want people to get obsessed with protein either because it's not the be all end all of food. It really, again, it depends on your goals. It depends on your kind of what you're trying to do a lot you know you don't need as much protein as you think you know i used to be i used to think that you needed lots and lots of protein like i was eating like i still remember when i was when i did my first ever kind of diet i guess to try and lose a bit of body weight this is back in 20 2011 or 2012 i was having about three to four grams per kilo like i was having over 200 grams of protein like 200 and something grams of protein it's like it was ridiculous because i was eating so much meat as well and I, I just think about my diet back then, like it's, it, it's the most unsustainable way of eating ever. It's crazy expensive. And what was I doing with that protein? Like we don't store protein apart from kind of in our tissues, like some muscle, bone, those are areas where protein is stored, but we don't store it like we store carbs and fat, like fat is stored as body fat. Your carbs are going to be stored as glycogen, as you know, in the muscle and the liver, but protein is not really stored. So any excess that your body absorbs, it doesn't really need, it just, you just you just excrete it, you know, as urea, as a waste. So if you're in such a positive nitrogen balance with, with the pro with the amount of protein I was eating, it's just, it's crazy. I don't know what I was doing clearly. And then over time, I think 
as I've read more and I've realized you can actually get away with a lot less, you know? So I think the number now we say is 1.6 grams per kilogram for anyone looking to build muscle. So anyone that's bodybuilding and trying to get that hypertrophy and strength training should be aiming for 1.6 grams per kilogram, which you can easily get, you know, if you're, if you're, I think 70 kilo person, that's what do the math. It's like 110 grams, I think something like that of protein. So it's, it's easily attainable. Yeah. yeah. If you're 60 kilos, it's like 96 grams, I think. So it's easily obtainable. So I try and aim for that amount every day. And I hit that without even really thinking, I don't have to count it. But what I would say is if you're, if you're someone that's trying to get leaner and you're in a calorie deficit, that's when you want to bump the protein up a little bit, just to about 1.8 to two grams per kilo, only because we know that at, in a, in a calorie deficit, you're, you're more catabolic. So your, your, your body is breaking, you know, your body's in a constant state of anabolism and catabolism, and it's trying to balance the two. So anabolism, you're building, catabolism, you're breaking down. And in that catabolic state, in a calorie deficit, your body's going to want to draw on sources of protein for, for other bodily functions, not just kind of building muscle, but whatever else it needs to do. And the only way it's going to do that is by taking it from like bone or taking it from muscle. So you're going to lose more muscle. So having that extra protein during those times is useful in a diet to try and kind of buffer against the effects of catabolism. So you kind of retain more muscle. What people might make the mistake of doing is if they're dieting, if they keep their protein low, they end up losing a bit more muscle as well. So yeah, in in those situations, definitely keeping it a bit higher. And I think also elderly population, we know they're, they're, they're people that are kind of almost resistant to putting on more muscle and they actually get more muscle breakdown. They get bone degradation as well. So, you know, to, we know that having a slightly higher protein intake can help against things like sarcopenia, osteoporosis in elderly people. So those populations should aim for about 1.4 to 1.6 as well. Whereas, you know, the everyday person that's not really working out, not really training, I think they can get away with about a gram per kilo or just, just over that really. There's no need to aim so high. So yeah, my, my thoughts on protein has definitely changed over time because I didn't know anything about nutrition when I first started training, even though I was in medical school, they don't really teach you how much you need. They just kind of say, eat a healthy diet, <laughs> eat your five a day. They don't really teach you about nutrition. So that's all kind of had to be something I learned on the way. So yeah, it's been an evolution really. Could yeah. not agree more. Excess protein cannot be converted to glucose. Beans, you said that you call it as a secondary protein source. And in the past, I've gone into a few friendly debates of people in the vegan space, you have the whole food plant-based community and they are really keen on beans and some people have eight cups of beans per day to reach their protein targets. Nothing wrong with it. You can digest it, right? So look, the whole food plant-based community are my friends as well, right? So for me, I'm whole foods 90% of the time, right? I also have protein shakes and things as well. And we obviously we defer on how much protein we should be getting, but I think beans are great. You know, we know they're associated with longevity, all the kind of blue zones we look at, they're eating a lot of legumes in their diet, lentils, bean, you know, they're their source of protein, they're a great source of fiber. So I'm all for eating, you know, as many servings as you can get away a day, eight servings might be a lot, you know, <laughs> I don't think I could handle that. I think the, 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 the kind of bloat I would get from that, and, cause I eat a lot of fiber, like I eat, you know, upwards of 60 to 70 grams of fiber a day. You know, there's been times sometimes I've had a hundred grams of fiber or more, but eight servings of beans is quite a lot. But yeah, I mean, if you, if someone can digest it, why not? You know, it really depends on the individual person. I wouldn't tell someone to go from zero to eight straight away. If you slowly build up over time, there's nothing, nothing, nothing too wrong with it. As long as they're cooked well and you're, and you're digesting them, that's, that's fine. But I wouldn't say to lean on beans as a sole source of protein because 
people will, you know, people talk about kind of the amino acid ratios, things like that. So we know beans are slightly, they're higher in, I think it's, they're higher in lysine, aren't they? And they are lower in methionine. So, you know, you want to kind of balance that with having other sources as well. So not just leaning on one source of protein throughout the day, having varied sources is how you're going to get all the essential amino acids you need. So, I mean, like all, all plant proteins contain all the essential amino acids, but in varying amounts. So as long as you're getting different sources of so beans, whole grains, tofu, your seitan, your tempeh, all these different sources of protein, you'll get all your essential amino acids. It's funny because the one source that doesn't have the full amino acid profile is an animal product, collagen, a tryptophan, collagen, tryptophan, the one food that doesn't have the full amino acid profile mm. in plants and animals alike is an animal-based product. So beans, a lot of people also say, if you have more and more fiber, you're, you get mm. used to it. I don't get bloating anymore. Flatulence maybe, but okay. <laughs> bloating, bloating, <laughs> it's, it's, so when I first went vegan, I got very bloated, very, very bloated. And I was eating kind of lentil pastas, beans, all this stuff, and I got really bloated. But I think that was just kind of your gut microbiome adjusting to the, the new food you're eating, right? It's got to, you've been, you know, your gut flora is used to the food that you feed it. And if you're completely changing your diet like that, it's going to, it's going to need time to adjust to that. And I think once it adjusts, the kind of discomfort effects you get of bloating things can, can be mitigated. I think in terms of eating a lots and lots of fiber, like if you look at indigenous populations or like even hunter gatherer populations, like the hard, so they eat over hundred grams of fiber a day, blue zone populations, they eat a lot of fiber as well, eating a lot more than kind of what the standard American diet is and standard British diet as well. They're having what I think the average in the UK is like 15 grams of fiber a day or something like that. It's rubbish, right? You can get that from a tin of beans, but like, you know, we're talking, we, we need to be getting at least 35 minimum as men, 30 as women minimum. I don't know why there's a difference between men and women, but there is apparently. So as long as we're getting that, that that's fine. I would say aim for 50. I'm not saying you have to aim for 150. There's probably a law of dimin diminishing returns, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not the case of the more fiber you eat, the, the longer you're going to live. It must come to a point where discomfort outweighs that. So I think aiming to, aiming over 50 is fine and is probably safer as well. Safer in the sense that you won't get the blow. Eight cups of beans will get you between 100 to 150 grams of fiber. And I'm yeah. not sure it's yeah, worth I mean, pulling yourself through this. More does not necessarily equal better as well. So like with all things, I think, you know, have, we know that we say, we tell people to have one or two cups or one or two servings of beans or legumes and lentils a day, because we know that's associated with added health benefits beyond having zero of that. I'm not going to tell someone to eat eight servings of those things because we haven't got the data to say that having more of it is going to prevent you getting colon cancer or prevent you getting high cholesterol more. It's, there's, there's no, I don't, as far as I know, there's no data on that. It's, it's more about kind of what are healthy populations in the world eating? They're eating more of this, but how many servings are they eating? Okay. Well, they're having about two to three servings. They're not having, they're not having eight. So. That's an extreme. That's an extreme example. I would say having eight servings. I think that's the problem with nutrition. People hear something's health promoting and they hmm. say, I'm just going to only have this, but it's all about the, the overall diet. Yeah. As you say, it's about the overall picture. It's about the overall dietary pattern. You know, it's, it's not single foods, you know, taking, having a green smoothie in the morning is not going to solve all your issues when the rest of your diet is rubbish and your sleep's rubbish and you're not exercising. There's all these other aspects, you know, that need to be taken into account. Mm. creates a lot of confusion as these anecdotes on 
social media. I saw this today. It was someone selling their product. There was someone with a testimonial saying, I gave this to my kid every day for two weeks. And then the eczema cured up. Mm. All of these anecdotes, yeah. they're, they're powerful to the individual, but yeah. they create a lot of confusion. Yeah, definitely. I think that's why we don't look at anecdotes, do we? Like as scientists, we don't look at anecdotes. We look at, you know, observational studies. We look at large cohorts, you know, we do, we look at data and anecdotes are fine, but they're not going to be what we base our guidelines on. They're not going to be what we base our advice on. And we know that, you know, real life is very nuanced. There's no kind of, this is going to cure everything for everyone. You know, even telling everyone to eat a certain food is not going to be suitable for everyone. You know, I'm not going to tell people that have a soy allergy to eat tofu, right? So it's not a one, one size fits all kind of approach. You kind of have to look at what are the guidelines and give that, give that nuance and tell them that actually it's the overall dietary picture. That's why, you know, everywhere you look, it's going to tell you to eat a plant predominant diet. You know, we're not going to talk about special juices or special cleanses. We're not trying to sell a product here, right? But people that are trying to sell you a product or sell you a way of sell you a lifestyle, I guess, or, you know, sell you, sell you their book or sell you something, they will tell you in absolute, like, this is what's going to help your, you know, eczema. This is going to help you achieve this, this and that, you know. Whereas we know that that's not how science works. That's why we need data rather than anecdotes. Talking about the medical community, you're mm. training to be a GP. What's your view? Should doctors have a certain minimum level of physical health? I have a lot of compassion because I know that doctors, they have lots of stress. It's very difficult to keep a certain level of minimal yeah. standards. The public, they will rather take advice from someone shirtless on social media. Yeah, this is the problem, isn't it? So there's a few things to unpack there. I think should doctors have this minimum standard? No, I don't think they should have a minimum standard. Should doctors try and try and kind of at least practice what they preach? Maybe. I think it's difficult because we're human beings at the end of the day. A lot, as you said, a lot of us are stressed. We live stressful lives. You know, there's humongous rates of suicide amongst physicians and doctors because of how stressful the job is. You know, there's a recent suicide just a few weeks ago in Birmingham of a, of a junior doctor. I think she was in her thirties or forties, quite young. I think she was in her thirties, you know, commit suicide. It's, it's a difficult career. And I think uh, people are struggling and people are trying to do the best they can. I do agree that there is a public perception on kind of, they might not take advice from their doctor. If, as you said, they, they, they outwardly appear not to be healthy. I think basing health on appearance is a bit dangerous sometimes as well. Cause you know, someone could have a six pack, like even that photo of me where I've got that six pack, I don't think I was really healthy at that point because I was, you know, like I'd been dieting for 13 weeks or so. I think it was 12 or 13 weeks I dieted for. I was super tired. I was waking up at 5am because I, my cortisol levels were so high. I wasn't like a picture of health during that point. You know, I'm much healthier now that I've got like less of a six pack. I've still kind of, I'm in good shape. But uh, I'm, you know, I wouldn't, it's difficult to judge based on physical experience, what, physical um, appearance, what I'm saying. I think we shouldn't judge on that. But I think doctors do have a kind of duty to themselves to try and be healthy because we, we know what, we know what health kind of is. We're taught that, like, you know, we're taught these are the things you should be doing. You know, the, you know, if you're, if you, if you are kind of sticking to the kind of pillars of lifestyle medicine, if you are, you know, minimizing your alcohol intake, you don't smoke, you don't engage in dangerous, like drug activities, you don't, you keep good relations with people, you uh, manage your stress well, you eat a healthy diet, one that's kind of plant predominant, all these things. If you do all of the and exercise, you make sure you're like exercising a few times a week and maintaining a healthy body weight. These things are important to the individual, to the, to, as a doctor, it should be, it should be something that we want to do 
for ourselves. Personally, I do think it helps patients if we are that kind of that kind of doctor because you know just just from my own experience i'm more likely to talk to patients about their diet about their exercise about these lifestyle things than other doctors um just because i have an awareness of them and because i also practice them i think there's a, there's been a couple of studies i think they did a study on physicians kind of basing their own views on their health and also how they kind of speak to health about patients they, and they found that kind of the doctors that were quote less healthy or did not engage in kind of the health promoting activities like exercise and weren't in great physical shape they were less likely to talk about these things with their patients just because they don't really do that kind of stuff right and similarly doctors with higher bmi were not were less likely to talk about weight loss with their patients you know going down the whole things associated with weight stigma is another is another podcast in itself but just you know just being able to talk about certain things like uh, obesity or kind of smoking and things like that it's difficult to do when you're also engaging in certain activities, right? And talking about healthy eating, like no one talks about healthy eating because frankly, no one's eating healthy. And I think, and there was another study, like you said, the public perception. So public are less likely to kind of, they're more likely to want to trust a doctor that actually looks outwardly healthy and probably isn't smoking and things like that. I've seen several articles like this as well, where, you know, if, if you, if a if patient sees that their doctor's a smoker, they're less likely to listen to them when it comes to like stopping smoking or the habits like that, which does make sense. It's just how the human mind is, right? You're, you're more likely to hire a personal trainer who's got in great shape themselves than hire a guy who may not have got in good shape at all, but he might have all the knowledge in the world and he might be able to actually help you. He might be actually a better personal trainer, but he might not be, he might not be in shape himself. So just because of based on appearance, because that's how human beings are, we're likely to hire the guy that's in better shape. And I think, it's a difficult kind of, it's a difficult space to navigate. And I think what should happen is that doctors should make an effort for themselves more than anything else, not just for the patients. And whilst I personally believe it's good to kind of be a role model and set an example for the patients, I don't think there should be this minimum standard because it's, you know, at the end of the day, we're humans. What matters most is that the doctor is a good clinician. They know what they're talking about. They know how to help their patients. They're compassionate and they actually want to help their patients. Those are the main things. And you know, if that doctor happens to be a bit unhealthy or something, that's, you know, as long as they're helping their patient and doing the right thing for the patient and able to talk about the right things to their patient about preventative stuff. So about, you know, diet and exercise, as long as they're able to talk about that stuff, that's the main, but yeah, I don't know what you feel as, as someone, a member of the public, as you said, you know, if your doctor was able to at least talk about those things with you, would you then be like, hang on, actually, he's actually at least talking about those things. He may not you know, because you don't know, he he might be a bit overweight, but he's also, you know, swimming lengths. He's he's exercising, you know, health can exist at some other, you know, you don't have to have a six pack to be healthy at all. You know, you can look a bit, you can be a bit overweight and still be really, really healthy. It's not, it's not always about, you know, how much you weigh or if you have a six pack or anything like that. And so, yeah, be very, be very careful to judge people just based on what kind of how they look, even though there is a bit of a uh, I guess a crossover there. The key words you mentioned is yeah. compassion. So I think yeah. the public, they mostly are drawn towards first actually feeling that the doctor cares about them, mm. then mm. actually what the doctor knows. So mm. the relationship is very important, yeah, but definitely. maybe there should be some drive within the NHS or the medical authorities to help the system keep doctors mm. healthy. Does this exist within the NHS? Yeah, I guess there's always talks on ways to help with your stress, 
there's always like kind of every now and then a campaign for like on healthy eating and raising awareness and stuff like that. But people like, you know, human beings, are human beings. And, you know, if you're interested in it, you'll, you'll listen to it. And if you're not, you'll just poo poo it. It's, it's so variable. You know, some people care, some people don't. It's hard to, it's hard to get through to people that don't care. Cause I, you know, I just know, I know loads of doctors that engage in unhealthy habits because, you know, they, they, they view it as life's too short. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about this. It's that instant gratification versus the long-term, you know, gratification. You, you don't realize the stuff you do now is going to impact you long-term usually. And it's hard to get that, you know, we can talk about, it's just like talk about veganism, really. You know, you, you can tell people about it and show them the studies. You can show them the science. You can show them exactly what happens to animals, all this stuff. At the end of the day, people are going to do what they, what they believe and what they want to do. Right. But yeah, I agree with you. There should be a bit more of a, a drive to engage engage health professionals in health promoting behaviors and for themselves as well as as well as talking about it with their patients switching back to veganism in terms of psychology what are the best ways to help people get an appreciation for the terrible things going on in the food industry yes that's difficult i mean it's i think being able to articulate what's happening in a way that doesn't doesn't make someone kind of feel judged or feel bad, even though that's usually the knee jerk reaction of people. You know, when you talk about this stuff to people, you have to maintain a very non judgmental kind of tone with people because, you know, it, it, people aren't, people aren't blind, right? People kind of, kind of know what's going on. And I think on some level, people do feel a bit bad, you know, kind of what I outlined before is that because of that bad feeling, they have to do these kind of cognitive gymnastics where they where they have to kind of then justify what they're doing because they don't want to be perceived as a bad person you know you can't you can't attack people for the choices they're making regardless of the negative consequences of the choices because again it's also recognizing that as vegans we're not perfect as well because there's things we do that also impact the environment and impact animals as well it's not a perfect system you know the, the food that i eat also has to be harvested from a field it also causes some habitat loss. It always causes, it also causes environmental destruction. You know, just by being a human being, we're, we're kind of guilty of that, I guess. But it's about kind of communicating in a compassionate, again, that word compassionate, again, it's about compassion, being compassionate and communicating kind of what's happening and maintaining that air of non-judgment to the person. Because if they feel like they're being judged, it just switches them off. You know, no one wants to hear it if they, if they feel like you're judging them. That's, that's just how people are, we get defensive, we, we feel like our identity is being attacked, we shut down, we then argue back. So that's, that's one of the main ways to kind of try and get through to people. But you know, I've hit brick walls with a lot of people kind of like my own family, they don't, they don't really want to engage, they don't want to hear about it. And you can't keep you can't keep pushing people that don't want to hear about it either. It's it, as much as you want to, it, it just completely you know, I think it does a disservice. I I, do, I think we should keep making the noise. Like vegans should still keep promoting it and keep talking about why it's important. Because if we don't, then it will just carry, the system will just carry on. Like nothing will change. But I think we need to be realistic and realize it's going to be a very slow, slow change. Personally, I think it's only really going to change when it starts affecting everyone even more negatively than it already is. Because right now, climate change and whatever, whatever's going on in the world, it's 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 not got to the point yet where everyone's feeling the heat literally you know we had our hottest day on record in the uk last year where it hit 40 degrees you know people still weren't kind of like oh my god we should be doing something about this they weren't really fussed so only when it's going to start affecting 
the world on a on a level where it affects the economy and things like that is are things really going to change but all we can do as an individual level is still keep talking about it still keep raising awareness but do it in a way that's just presenting the facts presenting the science presenting the data and trying to keep trying to keep emotion out of it because as soon as emotion gets involved i think i've I've just seen argument kind of get shut down a bit because people people get switched off they think that they think you're making them feel bad and stuff so I think that's that's the way I try and do it now, which, you know, I use a bit of emotion there because it is still emotional to me and it's still something I'm passionate about. But I try to show the facts as well. And then, yeah, people people are aware and they are cutting down, which is, which is a start. I feel that if you get too confrontational, people just switch off because yeah. people naturally like to protect their beliefs. Yeah. It's more about just creating opportunities for people to reconsider what's happening. So in the least the aggressive way, so yeah. I think showing compassion to the person, as you mentioned, just saying, I understand your view, you know, meat tastes good, but blah, blah, blah. You know, there's other alternative sources of protein you can eat, which don't require the slaughter of animals. Yeah. You know, I often sort of first yeah. show compassion. Yeah. I often ask them when, you know, cause I used to eat meat as well. So I was used that example. Like, look, I used to eat meat as well. Like, you know, I know it tastes good. It does. It tastes good. But is that enough? Is that enough to like justify it? Just think about it. Like you don't have to make the decision right now. You don't have to like go vegan overnight, but just think about whether something tasting good is enough for what's actually happening, you know, and you can, and you, you know, what's actually happening is like literally it's individual animals are suffering like they, they every day and 15 minutes of taste for me just doesn't justify like hours and hours and days and years of, of suffering of all these animals so yeah it's it's, it's a difficult topic to get to broach with people especially because it's so emotive but yeah as you said being non-confrontational is usually the best way yeah i it's funny because I think the public want vegans to behave a certain way. They don't want them to be that vegan. You know, the the one that's loud and extreme and all this, all these labels that they give vegans, not realizing that, you know, we're not here to kind of make veganism palatable. We're here just to present how, how it is. And because it's such a important thing, important, what's going on with the animals is so important. And we believe so passionately about animal rights. Well, of course, we're going to be vocal. We're, of course, we're going to be emotional and and, and, and it's going to seem extreme because it's not the norm, but you know, it's, it's just funny how people respond to the, the, the vegans that are kind of more don't want don't talk about it. They're the ones that are more accepted by the public. You know, they, they, everyone will be like, oh, I know a vegan, but he doesn't go on about it. That's what they'll say. And they're happier having those kind of vegans around because they're not the ones that, that will remind them of what they're doing. Whereas the ones that do talk about it, they, they tend not to like us too much. It's just a funny observation. Which boat would you say you are in? Are you sort of one of these people that just does the activism through social media or in person do you still try and spread awareness? I spread awareness everywhere I can. <laughs> so yeah. I've, I've done in-person stuff as well. Don't do it as much just because I guess like it's it takes a lot of time out of your day to go and do that kind of stuff. And I, you know, big respect to people that do it. I've, I've, st- I've gone out and done it and it's hard, like it's hard work to actually stop people in the street and... I almost feel like, you know, I'm having to stop them and it's, it's, you don't want to be like, a, you don't think of yourself as a, almost like a, not a nuisance, that's not the right word, but you know, I, I get people are busy and they're going about their day. They don't necessarily want to be stopped in the street and, and bothered and talked to, but I think it's important because it, it still raises awareness and it's one way of doing things. And I know people that do it. And I've got so much respect for them. 
I do it a lot more on kind of social media because I just think you can hit you can you can hit a lot more people that way. More more people are likely to see it. I think it's all effective in a way, and it all needs to be done. It's just this depends on how you do it, and then I guess you know even like sometimes I don't really do I don't really do it with patients unless they ask about it. What I do there is more trying to promote the dietary side of it a bit more. Try to get people to eat less meat and eat more, and then you know sometimes they'll turn around and say, "Oh yeah, I've been." trying to go vegan or I've, you know, tried to go vegetarian or whatever. And it's quite nice then getting into the discussion about it then. But yeah, I'm definitely not the quiet kind of person that just try to, tries to go about the day quietly. I'll, I'll be vocal as I need to be, especially, especially when people want to kind of not fight me on it, but especially when people want to know more about it. Well, yeah, if they want to fight me on it as well, I'm definitely not one that's going to be quiet about it. Yeah. As someone who used to eat animal products myself as well mm. i never responded well to the sort of really aggressive demonstrations where where people make parades or you yeah. know come out with banners I, yeah. I respond well to sarcasm humor so yeah i don't know if you know lifting vegan logic yeah of course yeah he's great yeah he was the one that sort of opened up my mind just okay. through his sarcasm humor yeah, yeah so i responded well to that yeah, I think, yeah, everyone's different. Everyone's going to respond to things differently. I think the, uh, I've been on the Animal Rights March in London before a couple of times. And then it's, uh, that stuff's powerful in a way that it's in terms of it. I think it, it's nice to see so many people believe the same thing that you do. And I think it's, it's important to kind of, you know, these marches and stuff is another way of kind of raising awareness about it. Um, and it gets a bit of attention. It gets a bit of publicity. Again, it gets people thinking about it that, you know, it's not something that's, quiet and it's going to go away it is something that needs because because at the end of the day when we think about it it's, it's not a diet it's not it's not just that we're using these animals it's it's this systemic oppression and objectification and commodification of sentient beings like when you think about what it what it actually is what what you know the system is the system that melody joy calls carnism when you think about what that is about the use of animals like this it's crazy like it's it's mad that we still do it you know it's something that should be completely you know, it's, it's something that should be left in the past when we needed to do it. And I get in some societies and cultures, it still needs to be done because there's no alternatives. But I think, you know, if human beings wanted to, we could easily figure out alternatives. You know, if we put all the money that we're putting into keeping animal farming and all that stuff alive, put all the money from that into actually developing the technologies that's going to take us into the future, like cell-based meat, plant-based meats that are 3D printed, you know, you, you've got your uh, precision fermentation as well, kind of bacteria and teaching yeast cells to make proteins. You know, if you put all the money into this kind of stuff, think about, think about the lives you'll save, not just animal lives, but human lives as well. Like it's the knock on effects is huge. The amount of land you'll save, the amount of water you'll save, the amount of greenhouse gas emissions you'll, you'll cut down on. Talking about saving the planet, you know? So there's no wonder people are so passionate about this, you know, because we know that this is a huge way of actually saving not just animals, but the world, but people, people just, just think vegan. And they just think of that annoying person with a sign that's saying, please leave animals alone when it's so much more than that, you know, that's important as well. Obviously we want people to leave animals alone and just let them live their lives. But we're talking about actually like huge knock on effects of the whole planet. So yeah, you know, it's, yeah, people just want to different things. And I think we still need those activists as well, for sure. Yeah, and you talked about all these great new technologies, yeah. which I think we'll see in the market in the next few years. And hopefully we can eradicate uh, the use of animals. And then mm. even with crops, hopefully we'll develop new pesticides, which can then 
be used with the least amount of destruction to preserve biodiversity. Veganism, it's all about mm. moving in the right direction. So a lot of people have this mentality, all or nothing. But currently right now, as you mentioned, there's still some death involved in crops. It's not as much as people think either. It's not because, you know, 70% of all crops are fed to animals anyway. They're not yeah. for our human consumption. Maybe the number's mm -hmm. even greater than that, but most of the crops that are grown in the world are fed to animals. So most of the crop deaths are associated with, again, yeah. in addition to animal deaths. So, you know, it's not it's perfect, all, but yeah. it's, it's the best thing. It's the best thing which results in the least amount of destruction yeah, to life. Soy, 80% is fed to cows, even cows yeah. which are grass-fed. It's still got six months being fed using grain. It still morally does not justify killing a cow, even if it's grass-fed. None of that does. It's, it's just, a, it's just yeah. a way to paint it, paint it nicely for people, isn't it? Calling it organic, calling it grass-fed, you know, farm, farm, farm grazed and all this stuff. It's, it's just a marketing ploy to get people to feel less bad about the, the choices they're actually making every day, isn't it? It's, it's brilliant marketing from these people. And it's managed to convince a lot of people that, you know, you're making a more ethical choice. You know, over here, we have kind of red tractor approved or the RSPCA approved, all this kind of stuff. When, you know, what does it really mean? Like the animal's still in rubbish conditions. It's still treated badly. It's still kind of kept in a, almost like a cage. It's basically a prisoner until it's finally killed. You know, it's none of it's moral. Like if you think about it, like, mm. and yeah, I just, yeah. it'll be, it'll come to a point where we will no longer be able to justify it and we'll look back on it. Like, what were we thinking? I think we'll, there will come a day when we mm. look back on ourselves, just like, just like people look back and, you know, think about kind of the modern slave trade where people look back and think about kind of racism, bigotry towards, you know, homosexuals and all these kind of horrible things people have done to each other as humans. And even people now look back and think, you know, things we did to other animals before, you know, you still have people kind of now turning around saying, actually keeping dolphins in, in aquariums is a horrible thing. You know, keeping chimpanzees captive is horrible as well. Like these are people that also eat meat, right? So they think keeping animals that have higher cognitive capabilities is horrible, right? Treating them poorly is horrible. So there will come a point where people will say, actually treating all animals in this way is, is abhorrent. It's just, it's just, it's just going to take some time, unfortunately. Mm. It's a paradigm shift that mm. when you look back, you then will look back in horror at what was going on. With your activism, have you had any stories where you've managed to make someone go vegan? Actually, yeah. I, you know, it's funny because I've had a, two of my best friends have ended up going vegan. I'd like to say it was my doing, but obviously I think they came around, you know, people come around to, to the conclusion themselves, right? So one of my, one of my best friends, he has a pet cat. And then when he saw cats in cages in Vietnam, when he came back from, when he came back from Vietnam, he kind of thought, you know, I've, saw, I've seen cats in cages and that's what people over there were eating. They were eating these cats. They were being raised for slaughter. When he came back and he compared to the chickens, he decided to go vegan because he was like, I can't, can't do this. But he, you know, I'd been kind of badgering him for ages about even thinking about the concept of veganism. So I think in a way I, w I kind of helped there. One of my other friends, Akash Pagello, who's actually the owner of RNT Fitness. He's actually gone vegan was, it'll be, it would have been January 1st last year, actually. So it's been over a year now for him. But I remember in 2019, he helped me with my original transformation. And then we sat down and recorded a podcast together that year. And he wanted me to actually surprise me because he wanted me to talk about veganism. And we did that for about an hour and a half, just, just veganism. And then the last part was about training and stuff, but he really took an interest in kind of 
the moral side of it, the ethical side of it. And there's lots of things he didn't know. And then he kind of came around to it himself and he would ask me a lot of questions. And then slowly, slowly he cut down his kind of meat intake and then eventually cut out eggs as well. And then went, went kind of, I would say dietary vegan January 1st for, and did, did a whole kind of really impressive kind of a transformation in himself as well, where he got into bodybuilding shape. Like he probably got into the best shape I've ever seen a vegan get into barring probably Nima Delgado. And it was just, yeah, it was just phenomenal seeing that. So yeah, he, you know, two of my friends, but I've had actually people come up to me. I think one guy actually came up to me on a train, which was really strange. I've never been, I never thought I'd be someone that could get recognized, but he came up to me on a train and said, Hey, I watched your episode with RNT fitness. And I've actually cut out eating meat now. And I'm telling my friends as well to like, they, they need to cut down the meat. I'm like, wow, this is actually a, a, a guy, you know, someone in probably his early twenties who's cut, not only cut down his meat intake because of a podcast he saw on veganism, but also is telling his friends about it as well, which was really impressive because, you know, men don't tend to go that way in terms of they don't really, it, men, there's less vegan men out there and men tend to care less about kind of the empathy side of things and all that when it compared to women, just, just from, just from the data, right. We know that, you know, 20% of all vegans are men, the 80% to 70% are women, just how it is. You know, I've had people, there was a place that we went into vegan life live in London. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's like a kind of a vegan exhibition. Someone there actually told me that they went vegan because of a video they saw. So with me and again on the podcast with, with my friend Akash. So I think, yeah, I guess talking about it, being an activist does actually help. And I think my approach does appeal to some people as well, because I talk about the health side of it, talk about the fact that you can still stay in shape, you know, your fitness is not going to suffer if you go vegan. And also I raise the kind of ethical points as well. So I don't just talk about nutrition. I don't just talk about health. I talk about what veganism is actually about and which that is actually the morality of it and the ethical side of things. That's actually the, the main kind of focus of veganism should be the ethics. It should be the morals, you know, but letting people know that they can do it in a healthy way obviously appeals to some people as well so yeah the activism is actually working to finish off you mentioned nemo that De delgado we've seen with liver king recently yeah. that people sort of knew he was on steroids and then he got exposed what's your view on some of the top vegan bodybuilders such as nemo delgado on reddit there's this widespread belief that in the league that he is competing everyone does steroids so ifbb in, you don't have yeah. to the... Most probably like 99% of people that are competing in IFBB are probably on steroids. I mean, so I guess you're asking, do I think Nimai Delgado is on steroids? I, I Look, whether he is or isn't, that's not up to me. I like Nima. I've actually met him once at VegFest in London and we had a brief chat and he, he seems like a really nice guy. When I actually met him, one thing I was surprised at is, is he's not as big as people think he is. It's, it's not an insult, but... You look a lot bigger, even me, I look a lot bigger in photos and I've had people accuse me of taking steroids, you know, even in Reddit. So like on Reddit, there was a post of me that went viral for some reason and people were accusing me of taking steroids and I know myself and my friends know me and people that know me, like they know I haven't taken steroids, which I, when I was younger, I used to find it really funny because uh, I, I, I kind of find it both annoying, but also take it as a compliment. I guess I find it annoying because it's like, you know, how can you not believe that I can do this naturally? But really it's actually take it as a compliment, right? Because people are saying that this physique can't be achieved without steroids, which it obviously can, because I've done it. And I think most people, more pe I think there's a two things there. I think one, people don't know what can be achieved naturally, especially people that 
don't train and haven't actually gone there themselves. So, and they're always going to hate, you know, there's always going to be a hater, right? Forget Liver King. We'll talk about that in a second, but there's always going to be a hater that says, you know, you, this can't be achieved naturally. I've had it all over my, when Men's Health did the article, all the comments are like, oh, this guy did steroids, this guy did, and I'm just laughing, sitting there going, man, like I'm the last person that you think I weighed like, 130 pounds or something <laughs> like i was so i'm so i'm like i'm not a tall man and uh, i was super light and i was like if i damn if i took steroids and looked like that i would feel bad like i'd want to look way bigger way more jacked if i did steroids so you're always going to get these haters that just think they know more than they actually know even recently like said as as recently as today there's a guy commenting on my friend akash's photo saying this guy definitely did steroids, especially because he's plant-based. So that's another thing because you, you know, you've got into really good shape, which people don't think is achievable. They're going to accuse you of steroids. And then the added little added spice on top of that is the fact that you're vegan or plant-based. If you're, and you know, you can't possibly grow muscles without animal protein because these people don't know any better. You know, these people have no idea what they're talking about. They, they get all their advice from, you know, these fitness gurus on Instagram, these TikTok influencers that, are all bros that eat lots of meat and that's and that and that's all they know right i was like that too you know when i was like 18 and then i grew up you know and that's a problem a lot of people haven't grown up yet and they're <laughs> going to just accuse people of taking steroids whether nima has taken it or not i don't know i know for a fact that i've seen people that are natural that were as big as him so i think it is possible he may just have really really good genetics he may just have really freakishly good genetics He's not that tall, so he he's able to fill out a bit better because he's not tall. If you're a tall person, then it's harder to fill out and look big. Like when you're short, it's actually easier to look. You know, if you look at like pro bodybuilders like Franco Colombo, he was pretty short. He filled out really well, and and obviously they were on steroids because they were they were like top top bodybuilders. Whereas Nimai, he got the pro card, but he wasn't like he didn't he wasn't like. He wasn't competing against your Kai Greens and your Phil Heaths and your, your, you know, Dorian, you know, he wasn't comp competing with these guys. He was, he was, he just got the pro card because he looked pretty damn good. Right. And he, and, and he, and, and, and he had good size. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it is achievable naturally, whether he took it or not. I don't know. And I don't want to assume that's up to him to tell us and it's on his conscience, but yeah, no, nah, he's a nice guy as well. So he can, he can, he can answer that question one day. I think most, loads of people have asked him, loads of people have accused him. He stood firm saying he hasn't, I like to think he hasn't, you know, he was young when he did it and he's, he's, he's not, he's not as big as, you know, people that I know have taken steroids do get as well. So I think it's on the Reddit post, it's, it's always a, there's always a bit of hate for, especially vegan bodybuilders because they just can't believe that they can get, they can get jacked on plants. So yeah. Liver King is just another story. He was, he was like in his fifties, right? It was quite obviously he was taking steroids because to have that much muscle and be at an age when your testosterone actually declines. It's just not likely he, he's like five foot six and he looked like he weighed about 220 pounds as well. Like he, he looked, he looked huge and he was constantly lean year round. Whereas if you look at Nima, he was lean for the photo shoot only. And then he kind of looked a bit normal during the year. So yeah, I, I would, I wouldn't buy into these Reddit threads and I wouldn't, I wouldn't dwell on them either. It's not important. So liver King, it's harder to gain muscle when you're older and the fact that he he gained so much muscle in his fifties as an indicator, yeah. right? I mean, that's one indicator, but also just, you know, the very, the look of him, right? He always looked like peeled dry, you know, all year he, round. He always wore a hat as well. I think he's probably, cause he's probably losing hair because of the, 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 
the androgen use, right? And yeah, the emails that got leaked were just, they were great. I was waiting, it was waiting to come out and it was so obvious as well, but that's what, that's, and that's the thing they're selling, he's selling, he was selling a product, right? So he did it for that. And people are now wanting to sue him because of yeah. all the supplements he sold. I don't think they're going to win. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. The amount of misinformation. That's what TikTok and Instagram is now. It's just a lot of misinformation. That's my goal to keep on fighting against all this misinformation. Yeah, no, it was good talking to you, mate. It was an incredible conversation. You're extremely calm, such a great speaker. So people can follow you on Twitter at Dr. Iron Junkie. And yeah. it's the same on Instagram, right? Yeah, Instagram, yeah. Dr. Iron Junkie, which is a name that Perfect. came up with when I was like 16 and I don't know why it's stuck. Take yeah. care with all your exams and make sure you get good grades, okay? Yeah, cheers, mate. Thanks. It's pass or fail. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You can support Foolproof Mastery in a number of ways. First of all, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a review on Apple Podcasts with an honest opinion of what you think. Leave plenty of comments on YouTube and share with your friends, family and colleagues if you feel that you have learned something new in order to keep on getting the knowledge out to as many people as possible. Finally, keep on living every day to the maximum and see you next time for another episode. Ciao.